I'm Hugh Ronzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome, welcome to to Tales of Baroque. Each episode you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Sit back, relax and enjoy this episode of Tales of Baroque ahead of Brandenburg's program, The Lover. Hello, Alan. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, hi, Hugh. It's lovely to be back talking music again. Absolutely. And what a program we've got. It's, um, it's incredible how more and more I've noticed, obviously, and listeners surely too, Paul Dyer coming up with these pasticcio programs where we get a, a, some, some actually very interesting insights into the musical happenings of a particular period of time. Yeah, and in this program, it's uh, largely about England, but more than that, the connections between England and Italy in particular, where we see how the influences of different styles cross borders. And, uh, and so English music becomes really interesting and, uh, and diverse in the late 17th century. And I've had the pleasure already of meeting our incoming guest soloist and, and guest director, Théotime Langlois de Zwarte. So a, a, another fascinating twist in it all is that we've got a Frenchman playing all of this music. Yeah, isn't that interesting? But it kind of makes sense uh, in relation to English music in this period because the international influences were both from Italy and from France. Um, but that's uh, probably to talk about, to make sense of that, we really need to look a little bit earlier because the 17th century was such a tumultuous period in English history um, with the Civil War and the, uh, the overthrow of the monarchy and then the Restoration. All of that has a tremendous effect on what was going on in music. And so to make sense of what was going on in the latter part of the century, we really need to uh, talk a little bit about what came before. In order to get us there, Alan, I suppose listeners would be familiar with the names that are featuring on this program, at least the surnames. There are several varieties in terms of the actual uh, people themselves. It's not just one Eccles, but several Eccles, um, and not just one Purcell, but several Purcells. Uh, so we have Eccles, we have Purcell, we have Avizon, Vivaldi, Veracini. You know, there are lots of uh, interesting names, but for me, the most important uh, name in this program is actually Mateis and I think we'll get to him later, but maybe set the scene for us. So why don't we help listeners by brushing up a little bit on the history of, of things, England during the late 16th century underneath Elizabeth I, and how we get from there to the place where we end up for this program, obviously the late 17th century with uh, music uh, in the music of the theatre, these sorts of masks and, uh, and other more popular forms of music that we're going to hear in the program. Yeah, it's an interesting story because in the late 16th century, it's a kind of golden age of music in England with uh, a whole lot of of really terrific composers like William Byrd, Thomas Tallis, we've got Taverner, Gibbons, John Dowland, the wonderful song composer. Uh, We have madrigal composers like Wilkes and Wilby and so on. And so anybody who has, you know, sung in a choir and maybe done English madrigals, 
uh, anybody who sung church music by Bird and Talis and Taverner and so on, who are still some of the major composers used in Anglican worship, for example. Uh, these are really big names in music history, and they belong to a period where there was a kind of international polyphonic style established, which uh, belongs to the sound world broadly of composers like Palestrina, for example. So by that stage at the end of the 16th and into the beginning of the 17th century, England is actually a really important centre of music making with some really major influential composers. And yet through the middle of the 17th century, we hear much less about English music. And some of the reasons for that have to do with what happens uh, in the kind of generational change in music, but also to do with the political and, um, and even military situation with the Civil War. How much of an effect does something like a civil war have uh, in terms of the, the research and the, the historical work that you've done yourself? How much of an impact does that sort of event have on music making in general? You know, does, does the importance of music in a court situation uh, diminish at, at those times or is it the opposite? Yeah, it, it certainly has a, a really big effect. And in this case, uh, an even more disproportionate effect than it had in some other kinds of, uh, of conflicts. Um, what happens is that by about 1620, that sort of golden generation of English musicians had pretty much died out. And the next generation coming through start to take on some of the new sounds and ideas coming from Italy, uh, which we now think of as the Baroque style. So that the kind of period of people like Monteverdi, that kind of music starts coming through into English music. But before it really gets well established and we get significant um, composers uh, writing in that style. We have some important people like William and Henry Laws, for example, and John Jenkins, but they all get caught up in the Civil War from 1642 onwards. And because these kinds of musicians work for the royal court and for the, the major churches and so forth, they naturally finished up for the most part on the royalist side. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the Laws brothers was killed in, in action in, uh, during fighting in the Civil War. This has a, an enormous disruptive effect on uh, the life of the kind of elite music making that we're talking about associated with the court and church, partly because of the actual conflict going on, but also because of the way it was resolved. As many listeners will know, of course, uh, Charles I uh, ended up being tried and executed, and we have the period of the Commonwealth uh, under Oliver Cromwell. Now, what was significant about that was not just a change of rulership. In most cases where there was this kind of conflict and a new king took over, for example, well, that king would establish their own court with their own musicians, and many of the musicians from the previous regime might even be taken over into the new one. But the difference here is that under the parliamentary regime uh, the in the Commonwealth period, the people who were on the Commonwealth side who won the war were for the most part Puritans. That is, they were what we might now call uh, conservative Christian fundamentalists effectively. And uh, they were certainly convinced um, Calvinists. And one of the, the effects of that was that they had quite a strong uh, and negative moral view about public music making. Um, Calvinist worship included very little music, so there was no role for uh, professional musicians effectively in church music anymore. Uh, in fact, they um, banned organs even from churches. And there was a parliamentary order that said that 
uh, all church organs were to be taken out and destroyed. They were so bad, so uh, considered to be such a, an evil influence. I mean, that's an incredibly extreme you know, thing to do because given the complexity of organs and how much money would have been invested in their installation, you know, it's, it's the significance for communities as well. Like that, It's incredible to think that they would have done something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It was really a kind of radical change. And in fact, it's one reason why many English churches didn't have organs right through until the 19th century. It has to do with the establishment of the English West Gallery music making tradition, where they would have a small band to play the music to accompany hymns and so forth in church, because there weren't any organs, they'd been taken out and destroyed. So in that kind of uh, radically anti-public music, anyway, environment. It also meant that theatres were closed down uh, and that most of the professional musicians, therefore, were out of a job. Now, it didn't mean that the Puritans were entirely against music. They It was fine to make music privately as a domestic activity, but the theatres were considered to be immoral places. Uh, maybe they were, but uh, it was something where um, that all was shut down for the period of about 10 years. So it's only with the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II that all of that opens up again and we get the royal chapel re-established. Uh, and that was important not only as a site for music making, but as a site for music training. The top professional musicians went through there as choir boys. And one of the, the little boys who was taken on, who was born really at exactly the right time to take advantage of this was Henry Purcell who went into the Royal Chapel as a choir boy at the age of uh, about seven, and so grew up in this environment of um, a really elite professional music making, which had not existed for the previous 10 years or so. It's interesting to note that um, for a lot of these composers on the program, the biographical details are, are quite wishy-washy, and, and as to the direct relationships between some of the composers, it's not always clear. Obviously, Henry Purcell is such a huge f musical figure that we, we have a significant amount of research into his life and, and to his music making. What can you tell us about uh, Henry Purcell to, to start off with? So you said, mentioned that as a seven-year-old, roughly, we know that he entered into the school and, and that's where his, his music education started. Yeah, and he studied with some of the, the top musicians of the day who had, um, and many of them had got into exile or um, horror of horrors, uh, relied on teaching music to keep themselves going during the <laughs> Commonwealth period. Um, but uh, one of those who came back into the Royal Chapel was John Blow, who was uh, really um, significant composer himself and uh, a great model for Purcell. Uh, he recognised Purcell's talent and so much so that he gave up the post of organist of Westminster Abbey in order for Purcell to take it over when he was, I think, only 18. Um, and uh, because Purcell lived only to be 36 after his death, Blow actually took the job up again afterwards. And so it kind of shows how much he recognised this extraordinary talent that had uh, had come through his, his hands, really, as a a teacher and a mentor. That's an incredible act of musical nepotism there. I mean, it's it's interesting to see that, well, clearly Purcell had the talent. I mean, that, that's that's undeniable, especially with the music that that we've been left with. But um, but yes, the, and then that Blow should take the job back after, after Purcell's untimely death. Yeah, and uh, I think it, it says a lot about um, Blow's recognition of the, the talent that was there and... Uh, and it was a, a generous, I guess, and, and kind of self, it seems like, uh, a very selfless act to actually stand aside and allow um, Purcell to 
to develop his career that way by taking on this important job when he was so young. So perhaps, Alan, uh, you can finish the the biographical details that you'd started going into when you were talking about the royalty there and the restoration of the royalty. So, so what happened next? Obviously, we're seeing some some restoration of the musical training grounds that were accessible to musicians like Henry Purcell. More music making was acceptable again, and and then. Yeah, well, Charles II um, died in 1687, so he wasn't on the throne that long. And his brother, James, became King James II. Now, um, uh, Charles II was Protestant, James II was Catholic, and so now we get into this kind of uh, period where there was a kind of swapping back and forth between Catholic and Protestant monarchs, which ended with the so-called Glorious Revolution in which James was uh, deposed in a bloodless coup, effectively, and replaced by William and Mary. Uh, now, they were not only Protestant, they were, again, Calvinist. And so they, that takes us back more into the territory culturally of the Commonwealth. And so although they did maintain some court music, it wasn't on the scale that had been under Charles II or indeed under James. Um, and effectively what happened was the court musicians, including uh, Purcell, became part-time. So they provided certain services to the court. They uh, composed um, pieces like odes in praise of the, the king and queen and so forth, but there wasn't a call for theatrical music, for example, in the court. So what they did was to move out into public music making and particularly into the theatres. And this is where we get a lot of the fantastic music that has come down to us from Purcell and from some of his contemporaries like John and Henry Eccles, they're writing uh, not operas as they were doing in Italy, but for plays, which included a lot of music. So they're spoken plays, but there are songs and dance music and uh, overtures and so forth right throughout them. Uh, so music is a, a really uh, kind of fundamental part of the theatrical experience this time, even if it's not continuous music, which was uh, which we hear in opera, which was not part of the English tradition of theatre up to that time. So we're talking about a country where, you know, which had produced Shakespeare and uh, in which spoken theatre is a really big deal. And that's the tradition they're coming out of. But even in Shakespeare, there was lots of music. And uh, and in these plays, there was even more music. And so that's the kind of thing that um, that the Purcells and the Eccleses uh, were writing for. And it produced some wonderful stuff. We have, and this is where we get some of the really uh, lovely music that we're getting on the program uh, this time. Mm. Now, you mentioned John Eccles. He is the composer responsible for inspiring the at least the name of this program, if not, in fact, the, the whole approach to the program. I had a brief conversation with Teotim, which was fascinating in that um, he explained a little bit about the, uh, the recording process that went into this album, which he recorded with uh, one, just one Theobo player, Thomas uh, Dunford, who was playing on the arch lute in, in that recording. And they had discovered a whole lot of these songs that you've you've mentioned this music that was a part of the of, of the the public theater scene um in in london at the time and uh, one in particular the mad lover suite was a fantastic thing that um that he just you know, there's, there's a particular ground and an air from that suite that um Teotin became rather enamored with uh, now this uh, obviously is is an ambiguous uh, proposition that Brandenburg is putting together for for the program because yes we have a, a sort of pasticcio, um, but the the whole uh, theatricalness of this music is also being presented on stage in a way that um, 
I can literally see happening in front of my eyes because while I'm sitting in this soundproof room, the musicians are visible to me through some one-way glass and, and they're currently rehearsing the program um, with a scattering of couches and harpsichords and tables and chairs. And there's a whole uh, sort of still life scene that is going to become a part of the, 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 the project. Um, and uh, and it all starts with this wonderful music from the the Mad Lover Suite that's built on, on a ground. So as I'm looking at the musicians, why don't I put the music on from Teotim Longloidersvart's album, The Mad Lover, and uh, and then we can talk about this music, John Eccles and and his life, what biographical details we do have, and uh, and continue from there, Alan. How does that sound? That sounds great to me. So this is Teotim Longloidersvart and Thomas Dunford playing an air over a ground from the Mad Lover Suite. Now, as I bring this music back down, um, Alan, there, just before you go into talking about Eccles, I'd like to compliment Teotim on such a fabulous recording. I mean, the 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 way that we hear the archlute and and the bass, that, and then to start off with, and then his beautiful violin sound—it's incredible. It's already so theatrical for me. It is, yeah, and uh, it's the genius of this kind of music in a way that it seems uh, superficially quite straightforward and simple, but what that's doing is leaving the space for really excellent players to put their mark on it. It's expressive music, which um, requires the performers to kind of bring out that rhetorical, uh, declamatory kind of uh, conveying of the emotion that's in the music. Uh, and yeah, it's wonderful to hear great players doing that um, together in a way where you can hear that he's played this a lot. You know, he's kind of thought through this piece a lot and, uh, and it comes through in the way that he plays. Now, for John Eccles as a composer, what would have the function of this sort of piece been? And it's obviously in the context, it was actually written as part of a suite. Yeah, so the suite I 
um, I don't know that we know for sure, but uh, this kind of sweep is generally just a collection of pieces that were uh, interspersed through a play. So they would occur at particular points for, um, some of them would be dances in which that people would be literally dancing on the stage. Uh, and in other instances, they would be uh, what was called act music or curtain music, which would cover changes of scene, for example. Because uh, as the theatres became more sophisticated in the kind of uh, machinery and so forth that they had, it took a little bit of time to actually affect a scene change. And so while that's going on, you needed some music to cover, uh, the, to, to fill in the time, but also possibly to cover up some of the, the mechanical noise of you know, shifting things around on the stage and so forth. Uh, and so that's some of the functions that this kind of music would have played. But also it's kind of setting the scene, you know, it's, it's creating the mood of what's going on in the play. Absolutely. And and we, it's difficult from our modern perspective to imagine people physically doing all of the jobs that seem to happen seamlessly on opera stages and in, on theatre stages the, the world over these days. But, um, but yes, you know, people had to crank shafts and move curtains and all of that was happening um, so as to, uh, to create the, the theatrical effect back in the, in the late 17th century. Yeah, that's right. And um, what's... I think one of the fascinating things about a piece of music like this is that it actually shows within one piece some of those different kinds of influences that were coming into English music. So one of the things that, that happened with the restoration of Charles II was that he had spent the time during the Commonwealth period in exile and he'd spent it in France at the court of Louis XIV, who was, of course, a great lover of music, the employer of uh, Louis and so on. Uh, and uh, the King of France had a famous orchestra known as the 24 Violins of the King. Uh, and so this is what Charles had spent his time listening to. And so when he came back, he was really not keen on the older style of English music. What he really liked was French music. So they brought in several French composers and uh, there's a definite French influence on English music during that period. But it's also the time in which Italian music through the rest of Europe is becoming really influential and popular. And so we start to see Italian musicians coming to England, which was wealthy and had uh, plenty of uh, opportunities for foreign musicians to make a living. And so we get this wonderful mixture of some kind of English traditional styles with influences from French and Italian music. And so I think what we can hear in that Eccles going on is the form that he uses is what's called a ground bass. And this is where you have a short pattern, um, usually uh, just a, a bass line, uh, or it could be a chord sequence or kind of both together, uh, which is repeated many times. And over the top of that, that allows the musicians to either improvise or to play a set of variations that have been composed out in the way that we hear in that example. And uh, Purcell as well wrote many wonderful pieces of that type. It's more or less the same kind of principle as something like a 12 bar blues, where you've got the same chord sequence repeated. And because the musicians know the sequence really well, or as say in a jazz standard, uh, they know what chord is coming next. And so they can weave really intricate and interesting and often surprising variations over the top of it. And so Eccles is doing that. He's using this Italian form, but the sound that he creates over the top of it is to my ear, 
quite distinctly English because he's got these strange little sort of modal inflections where there are accidentals introduced. A note that you expect to be to be sharp is a flat, and it creates a kind of a little crunch, a kind of emotionally emotional stab almost that mm. uh, that really surprises and moves us. I think um, when we when we hear that, and probably that's the kind of thing that very effectively in the theatre expresses sadness or fear, maybe um, or uh, expectation, uh, and so he can really build a mood by that composing in that kind of way. Do we know if John Eccles himself was a violinist, and or any any of the biographical details of John Eccles himself? Where does he sit in this um, this musical realm, as it were? Uh, he was uh, a little bit younger than Purcell by about ten years or so, and uh, the son of. A, another musician. Um, so it's effectively Eccles who takes over the role of the, being the chief theatre composer after Purcell's death. Uh, and again, he's uh, just kind of coming into his own uh, as, a, um, as a leading composer uh, at the right time, I suppose, to take over. And there was plenty of work in the theatres because there was a lot of uh, theatrical music being made, but Purcell had, had dominated it so much during his lifetime that uh, then there's suddenly this great big gap which um, that composers like Eccles are able to fill. You mentioned Purcell, but uh, the, the next composer on the program following John Eccles is actually Daniel Purcell, so a different Purcell. Do we know of any relation between Daniel Purcell or what the relation was between Daniel Purcell and Henry Purcell? Yeah, it's still, as far as I know, a little bit unclear. He was thought at one time to have been uh, Henry's younger brother, but it seems now more likely that he was probably a cousin. And that in itself is interesting because it shows that it was not just a kind of father to son thing, but there were whole families who were uh, in the music business, as it were. And this was partly because being a musician was a trade at the time. It was a bit like being a goldsmith or a tanner or uh, you know some other kind of uh, of trade where you the skill was passed down within the family from father to son from uncle to nephew and and so on uh, and you really had to be a member of one of those families to have to and do an apprenticeship effectively uh, to become qualified in that trade and it's similar even down to people like J.S. Bach whose father and uncles and so forth were all musicians and the one advantage of that is that those people get to grow up in a thoroughly musical environment. They're hearing music around them all the time. Their, their friends and family are talking music all the time. They are learning it from a very young age, uh, as Henry and no doubt Daniel also did. Uh, and so um, we don't know exactly what the relationship was, but he's clearly part of this same very musical environment um, in which uh, both of them grew up. And we're going to hear from uh, Daniel Purcell, actually, some excerpts from a, a sonata, Sonata Sesta for solo uh, violin, so the sixth sonata for solo violin from that particular collection. Um, what can you tell us about violin sonatas and, and how English composers like Daniel Purcell were approaching this particular form at the time? Yeah, this is interesting because um, just notice that the title of it is Sonata Sesta, so it's in Italian, right? And this is an indication that the sonata is an Italian 
genre which they are borrowing into English music or, or um, are taking as an influence from Italian music. So this is one of those examples of where we can see that really rich kind of international influence coming through into English music. It's a period when the sonatas of particularly um, Corelli are starting to become known uh, and, and some other Italian composers are writing these pieces which are now becoming quite virtuosic. They feature the solo violin or often two violins together in trio sonatas uh, and uh, they offer opportunities for uh, for really fine players to show off what they can do to play expressively and brilliantly and this is a lot of the kind of influence that was attributed to Italian music. It was about intense expression but also about brilliance and virtuosity and uh, and that's not coincidental. I think that it it comes in the same period when Italian musicians like Nicola Matteis, who we'll talk about in a minute, uh, are coming to England and showing a kind of music that perhaps had not been well known before, but which is really the latest thing and uh, considered very fashionable and stylish. So why don't we have a listen to Theo Tim again and Thomas Dunford playing the third movement, the Adagio from the Sonata Sesta for Solo Violin. Um, why don't I put on that and then we can continue talking about Nicola Matteis and his influence. In terms of affect and, and how music can uh, literally convey emotion, this is in a, a minor key again, much like the, the, the first piece that we, we heard, but this time in, in F minor. Perhaps what, what sort of affect is, is the key of F minor meant to have at this point in time? And, and is Daniel Purcell playing into that whole, that whole part of, of music composition? I think he probably is. Um, a lot of musicians and theorists wrote during this period about the different emotional characters of different keys and from a modern point of view we might think how what difference does it make it's major or minor or whatever but whether it's in e or f or uh, f sharp minor or something uh, doesn't make that much difference if you play it on the piano for example all those keys sound effectively the same uh, it's just higher or lower but in this period, because the tuning system was a bit different, uh, it wasn't equal temperament like we have on the piano where every note is exactly the same distance apart. It meant that uh, the sound of particular chords in particular keys sounded slightly different. Um, and F minor, because it has four flats, is taking us quite a long way in the flat direction, just about as far as you could go before it started, started sounding really nastily out of tune. Uh, it's just kind of on the borderline where 
the, the chords just feel a little bit unsettled and slightly uncomfortable. And so there's a bit of room to kind of play around, particularly if the violinist who has, uh, who can just slide the finger slightly this way or that to adjust the tuning, can kind of play around pushing and pulling against the, the sound of the chords that are, are coming from the lute. Now, having said that, the lute being a fretted instrument does play in something pretty close to equal temperament anyway, but even that is kind of away from the usual expectation of the music at the time. And so I think it, uh, F minor was often used as a key for, uh, for music that was intended to be kind of unsettled, to be sad, uh, to be maybe a bit desperate. It was used for pieces during this period that related to uh, lamentation, um, pieces in memory of somebody who had died, for example. So I think we hear a little bit of maybe that kind of unsettled uh, atmosphere in music like this, a bit similar to the, to the echoes that we just played, in fact. And I think we can also hear some of that kind of playing around with the possibilities of different kinds of surprising intervals and so on. And part of the way this works, I think, is that because the accompaniment, the bass line, is quite stable and feels kind of predictable, it feels like we can hear where it's going, that means that there's more freedom for the melody to play around and do unexpected things uh, along the way, which tell us an interesting story before we finally arrive at a resolution at the end where the story kind of finishes or the, say the paragraph finishes with a full a satisfying full stop and mm. we go okay that's where it was going but it's taken us on a really kind of interesting and often surprising journey on the way uh, as to how we get to that conclusion uh, and i think you've you've really summed it up very nicely in the sense that um within some of these these keys like f minor you have a, an inherent crunchiness especially with with the the violin sound and that that it it adds yet another sort of trick to the the musician's uh, uh hand and and they can they can exploit that and in this case the 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 stage the way that it's going to be set as sort of like this the still life scenario where we can ambiguously imagine some sort of uh, lost love or lamentation of some some lost beloved, as it were. I mean, I'll, I'll let listeners imagine whatever they'd like to, but uh, but it really does start pulling at the uh, at the heartstrings, as it were, and and try and drag us through uh, a, a really emotional journey. Yeah, and that's really the essence of what this kind of music is all about. It was explicitly setting out to take us on an emotional journey and to convey uh, quite intense emotions that, uh, that the audience is really supposed to feel. Speaking about intensity, now there's certainly a figure that was absolutely intense, um, and that's Nicola Mateis. He he has uh, he garnered quite a, a significant um, uh, a significant following, but also a significant reputation during the short period of time that he was flourishing on the on the um, on the music scene in London. Now we don't know much about his biographical details. Perhaps we could start there. Who is, in, in Simon Jones's words, the stupendous Nicola Mateus? Who is this figure and, and what is he doing in this program full of English music? Well, he's doing what he's doing in a program of English music is the fact that he was in England during this period. And so it's through people like Matthias that uh, certainly the Italian influence was 
was propagated. Uh, he was playing to some of the most eminent people in the, the land, and so they were hearing Italian music and being kind of wowed by it, really surprised and delighted uh, by this new kind of music that was coming in, part of which was about the virtuosity of his playing. Um, violin virtuosity had been developing in um, in Italy and in uh, Austria and Bohemia uh, during this period. So we have people like um, uh, Heinrich Bieber, for example, is one of the great violin virtuosos of this time. Uh, and so uh, in a way, somebody like Matthias going to England is, is a little bit of a a kind of circus act almost in a way, I think to, to some people, he's coming and doing stupendous things and they're thinking, okay, well, how does this music work? Why, uh, what's the purpose of doing all of this kind of virtuosity? Um, he was described uh, by Roger North, the English uh, writer who was a very keen musician and wrote a lot about music that um, he said, Matthias had arrived in England, uh, quote, afoot with his violin on his back. Uh, which kind of implies he would, had just kind of turned up with nothing much with him apart from a violin. Um, and so he was not somebody with a, a high reputation or with uh, wealth or, or influence behind him when he arrived. He was there just to make his fortune pretty much. Uh, and uh, But Roger North said he was, uh, despite arriving with uh, so little, he was inexpugnably proud and hardly prevailed to, pay to, to play to anybody. So uh, he's, he obviously had a very high opinion of his own abilities, but uh, North says, eventually good counsel and starving brought the man over and he became the most debonair and easy person living. It, <laughs> it's fascinating part. to think that it, it just came down to simple the simple fact of needing to eat that maybe he started, uh, you know, playing as it were in the in the manner or, or, or with the certain politeness that would have been required in those social circles. Yeah, I think uh, English society at the time, was, as all European societies were, was very kind of class conscious and so forth. And uh, in order to uh, to make a living, you had to be playing for the, the kind of people who had the resources to support you, to patronise you. And uh, for him as a foreigner, he had to kind of learn the rules, I think, really, of, of how to, to operate in English society and what was expected of, of somebody who was a professional musician. You had to show the appropriate deference and uh, to the uh, aristocrats who would employ you and so on. And so it seems that uh, Matthias gradually kind of figured out what he needed to do. But nevertheless, he was in no doubt at all about his own uh, standing as an important musician. And uh, he continued to uh, to refuse to play uh, unless the conditions were exactly right. Um, he wasn't just going to get up and, and play like any, uh, you know, tavern fiddler for whoever asked. It was only when he was invited to um, to somewhere that he, he thought was worthy of his attentions that he would uh, bother to play properly. But when he did, he really astounded people with the way that he could play. And not only uh, it was it the virtuosity of his playing, but it was also the style of his playing. The, uh, the way that he actually held the instrument was considered unusual and striking. And uh, it also had uh, quite a significant influence on English music making. And I think it's important to note there that um, that this point of difference actually comes before Corelli's influence in, in, in England. You know, he's flourishing at around the time of 1670, and, and this is uh, during Charles II's reign, so uh, where the court was more Francophile that you've mentioned. They, they were into French music, and this Italian music, what Matthias was bringing, these elements, were, were fiery. The, the intervals are simply bigger. I mean, he's just, you know, he's doing all of these things that, um, that certainly are a big point of difference between Italian music and French music of the time. 
Yeah, that's right. Where the French music is is much more kind of classical in the sense of being orderly and structured and uh, and elegant and refined and so forth. And the kind of Italian music that uh, Matthias is bringing, I think, probably sounded to people very kind of wild and and unrefined in a sense. And yet he's doing it with this glorious control and the the ability to do things that the French violinists of the time probably couldn't do. Um, and one of the striking things was also how he held the instrument. Um, we uh, we have to rely quite often on on pictures and sometimes on descriptions of um, people's playing style to understand how they actually played at the time. And many listeners will have noticed that when you go to a Brandenburg concert or or concerts of any of the our wonderful uh, period instrument ensembles that they hold the violin slightly differently from the way modern violinists do. And in particular, they don't use generally a shoulder rest or a chin rest to hold the violin in place. Uh, on the modern violin, having the shoulder rest allows you to hold the, the violin under your chin uh, effectively no hands. You know, you can take your hands away and it will stay there, which you can't do with the Baroque violin because it just sits rather more loosely on usually on the collarbone uh, and maybe with a, a, um, a chamois or a cloth over the top to, to kind of help it stay under your chin. But Matthias conversely played in what was a, an older um, style of playing, which is used mostly today by folk musicians, which is holding the violin right down on his chest. In fact, um, Roger North wrote that he held it uh, against his short ribs or almost against his girdle. That is almost down to his waist. So he's holding it kind of in the crook of his elbow effectively. Uh, and that is a completely different way of, of managing the instrument. Um, one of the consequences of that is that you can't easily slide your hand up and down the neck of the violin to play very high. So. Uh, when we hear Vivaldi and Verrocini, the great violin virtuosos of a couple of generations later, and they're going right up high on the to, to the sort of squeaky notes at the top of the, the instrument, that involves sliding your hand right up near the, the bridge of the instrument and um, to play those very high notes. Uh, and your problem with that is if you're holding the violin down on your waist and you don't have a, a kind of grip on it with some other part of your body, uh, it's fine to be coming up the neck to get up to the high notes, but you can't get back because once yeah. you slide your, or it's really tricky to slide your hand back down without dropping the instrument. So it's a different kind of music um, in which is played mostly just in the, the first position down uh, down near the, the um, tuning pegs of the instrument. But uh, clearly, Matthias was able to play in a, a really virtuosic style in this un with this unusual hold. And also his bow hold was different from what English musicians were used to. So all of those things uh, were kind of confronting and uh, had an influence on English violin playing. And if nothing else, made them think, gee, there are more different ways of playing the violin than we had thought of and uh, different kinds of sounds that you can make. And all of that feeds into this kind of ferment of, of different styles of music, which particularly Henry Purcell was so adept at uh, synthesizing into a distinctly English Baroque sound during that period. Now, there are three pieces by Nicola Matthäus on the program, uh, even though there is another Nicola Matthäus on the program, but that's his son. We'll get to him in a minute. So there's there's a, a, a folia, there's a, a particular uh, movement, just an adagio, it's actually a sarabanda amorosa from a suite in A minor, and a chacona. Now, I'm sure that listeners are familiar with the Matthäus chacona. Brandenburg has done it many times, and uh, and it's actually a fantastic crowd piece. So that piece is, is a fabulous piece. But tell us about these three pieces and, and what they represent in terms of 
of Italianistic violin playing from this time in the late 17th century. So these three pieces by uh, Nicola Matteis, the elder, because as you said, there is his son who is also Nicola Matteis, uh, they illustrate some of the, the really expressive elements of his style of playing. Uh, and the, uh, so the Sarabanda, that's a Saraband, which is a, a slow um, dance in triple time, which was very characteristic of the period. Uh, the other two pieces are both, again, ground pace pieces. So the uh, Folia variations um, is... Uh, Nateus is one of many, many composers, over, well over 100 composers who wrote sets of variations that we know of on this particular ground. Uh, there are famous ones by uh, Corelli um, and by many other composers. Uh, so again, it's a case of here is a kind of chord sequence which tended to go with a particular uh, melodic shape, which is set up as the theme, and then you can do a whole lot of different variations over the top of it. And because the ground bass is so stable, you know where it's going, uh, again, it allows the uh, the musician to do all sorts of variations over the top. And it's the kind of thing which a virtuoso violinist like Matthias probably did uh, as improvisation. And I imagine that he could do this kind of thing pretty much in his sleep, you know, the same way that a um, a jazz musician would be able to improvise over a, a jazz standard that they know very well without even thinking about it very much. But what we've got here is a written down version. So that represents probably the distillation of some of his kind of best ideas, I guess, for, uh, for contrasting variations over this bass. And also what it does is to allow other musicians to have a go at playing this by writing it down at of course, he hopefully makes uh, uh, some profit out of selling the copies, um, but it also means that other musicians, including the many amateurs who were keen on the violin, could go into a shop, buy a copy and have a go at playing this sophisticated Italian music and getting to understand it. And of course, all of that then feeds into the taste for Italian music, which permeates through English society. Now, I'm going to put this Fulia on, and I'm not sure exactly from whence uh, Teotim uh, came across it in the, the first instance but it does feature on the same album, The Mad Lover, with Thomas Dunford. Uh, the music goes on for quite a while, so I'm just going to put it on and then we can talk over the top of it. But I've got a great story to tell you about, about where I got the music from uh, for this in preparation of the concert. So this again is Teotim Longlois-Desfalt and Thomas Dunford playing the variations on La Folia by Nicolas Matteis.
So as things ramp up, invariably, as they do with all Fulia, and the, the variations become more and more intense here, uh, Alan, I'd like to, I'd like for you to imagine the wonders of of modern day technology in scanning and digital uh, uh, facsimiles and this sort of thing that didn't exist probably when you started your your study um, in musicology. The Bodleian Library in the UK, based in Oxford, actually has this particular manuscript, an original. So uh, it, it's a, it's not a copy in Matthias's hand, but it comes from a, a collection of, of particular works that were copied at the time. And it's a fantastic uh, document that uh, the, 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 the yellowness of the paper itself is interesting uh, uh, as well. But they scanned it for me and sent it through via email. And it's not a complete set of variations. In fact, it's not clear as to whether or not the variations on the page um, were meant to just suffice as it is. And in fact, that's where I can see some some liberties or some some things being taken in terms of figuring out how to turn it into a concert piece that Theo Tim and Thomas have realised here. Um, what do you know, and what can you maybe explain to um, to our listeners about? Uh, the, the way that manuscripts circulate these days and, and how they're used in, in modern musicology and, and what sort of things we can learn from these, these documents. Uh, you're right. It's one of the great developments in, uh, in technology of, the, of recent years that uh, allows us to do things that were really difficult or impossible to do even 10, 20 years ago, uh, which includes the digitization of so much of the material that's held in libraries um, around the world. Uh, even probably 20 years ago, to get hold of a piece like this, you would need somebody to go physically into the library, sit down with, with pencil and paper, not a pen, you're not allowed to have one in the Bodleian Library in case of damaging something, uh, but with a pencil and paper, copy out the piece and uh, and but in doing that you're effectively creating a new edition just in the the act of, of copying it out so the fact that we can now get a facsimile a photograph of the uh, the document uh, and have that really in a matter of seconds from the other side of the world is a fantastic development which allows us to do this kind of thing to hear music which otherwise we wouldn't get to hear um, I'm fascinated to hear what you were saying about the manuscript itself because it's it's not one that I I've uh, I know myself. Um, the uh, but great to hear that it comes from the Bodleian Library and many uh, listeners will probably know the Bodleian Library better than they think they do because it features as the the library of Hogwarts School in the Harry Potter movies, and it is truly a wonderful place if you get the opportunity to to go in there. It uh, was built in I, I think the 16th century and it has. Uh, just all those great uh, timber cabinets full of, of old books. Some of them are chained to the shelves and, and so on. It's a real historic library. And so it's nice to be reminded that these are real physical documents, actually things written on paper and sometimes on parchment, which live in real libraries around the world, uh, but which now we have uh, access to in this way. And in this case, yeah, there are many manuscripts that come to us that don't seem to be entirely complete. And that can be sometimes because they are written in separate part books, for example. So in some cases we might have, say, the violin part, but not the bass, and we have to uh, reconstruct that if we want to play the piece. Sometimes there are pages missing. Uh, sometimes there um, may be only part of the piece was ever uh, copied. And so we have to often reconstruct uh, and to some extent to recompose pieces to make them playable in the, the concert hall. But in a way, that's uh, not 
um, I mean, we might think, oh, are we really getting the real thing? You know, if you're only getting kind of something that was uh, that is part of an original. But actually, that's the way that musicians worked all the time at, at the time. Um, and uh, so to, to what you got, even in a relatively complete manuscript score, was just a kind of outline, a blueprint from which you had to, uh, in performance, recreate something that turns it into real music. Because the, the music, after all, is not the thing written on the page, it's the sounds that you make. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways of doing that. And so it means that different performances of the same piece will sound different because the musicians are coming up with different solutions to, to how to bring it to life. Absolutely. And I mean, that's exactly what's going on here. And to go back to your question, there there's a really obvious thing that you notice as soon as you look at this manuscript is that it actually starts at the first variation. There's no statement of the original theme in the, in the it's, it's assumed. It's an assumed thing, and so here we have uh, Tom. Uh, we we here we heard Teotim and Thomas starting with the initial statement of the the original Philia theme, which of course we're going to build the variations upon. But uh, but in the manuscript we don't even have that stated. It just literally goes straight into the first variation, and there's just a, a squiggle of the bass line at the bottom at the end of the the second page of the manuscript. It's barely even there. I mean, it's you know it's just it's it's just assumed that that just repeats and repeats and repeats. What What's interesting um, as well is that we get through the ninth variation and then all of a sudden it stops. There's no sort of double bar line or any sort of uh, significant marking at the end of that variation to say that's where the piece should end. But when you turn the page over on the next page of the manuscript, there are no more variations that are that are, that are listed. So either it was an incomplete copy that was made in the first instance, or perhaps there were only these variations set to to paper at at that time that the the particular copyist had access to. Now I'm not going to go into some of some more of the details because I'd like to tell you a little bit about how things have been happening in rehearsal because I did see this rehearsed yesterday and what was fantastic was that unlike in the recording that we're listening to now. Theo Tim actually has a much larger band at his disposal for the continuo section. We have some fabulous instruments. We've got both Tommy, uh, Tommy Anderson and Nick Pollock playing relative theorbos and guitars. They actually have several instruments at their disposal. We have Paul with his French double harpsichord. We have uh, Hannah Lane on Baroque harp, and she's got a, a triple harp that's just a, a beautiful instrument that I think um, audiences may remember previously seeing on the Brandenburg stage. And we have Jamie Hay who has an incredible bass violin. Now, this sort of looks like a cello, um, but actually it's more closely related to the instrument we often see Rob Nan playing on stage, which is called a violone. Uh, the, these, the, this mixture of instruments has meant that Teo Team has totally revised the way that the continuo and the role that the continuo instruments play in supporting his line with all of the variations that we're, that, that we're hearing. It, now, this is sort of quite standard practice, isn't it, in terms of how this early music is, is played today, isn't it, Alan? Yeah, that's right, because the what's written down on the page, um, often uh, right through until the uh, 17th and to some extent into the 18th century, composers often uh, didn't even specify what instrument was to play which part. Um, or if they did, they might say, it's, as in this case, the top part's for violin, but here's the bass line. And, you know, that's the bass line. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, you play it with whatever bass instruments are available. And so that means you could do it with just a cello or a viola da gamba or, or something. 
um, if you were just playing it at home and you only had uh, you know one friend around uh, but if you're playing it in a larger hall for a bigger audience then you can beef up the continuo section who are all playing from the same part from the bass line uh, and filling in the but you can have more instruments that can fill in the chords uh, so which means the things like the the lutes and theorbos and the harp and the harpsichord uh, all of which, and there are other instruments you could use as well, all of which could uh, fill in the harmonies. And it also means that you can uh, have some of those instruments join or drop out at different places to change the whole texture, the whole sound of, of the piece uh, to create the different atmosphere for, for different variations. And so some of the ones that are kind of um, light and, and cheerful and, and bright uh, you might have the cello leaping around at the bottom and uh, and just the harp or something, but then if you have a, a sadder one, well, you might, um, you know, introduce different instrumentation to, to give it a, a warmer, sadder kind of sound. And that all goes to the, the whole idea of expressing emotions intensely through this music. Now, aside from leaving us with some incredible music during the short period of time that he was uh, quite prominently on the, on the music scene in, in London, Nicola Mateus also left us with an incredibly talented son uh, whom I presume would have learnt violin from his father and in fact his biographical details the son's biographical details are also quite vague and 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 not really there what do we know about nicola mateus jr the younger what do we know about him and this um this fantasia that we're going to hear for solo violin in a minor well the younger nicola mateus uh yeah was born um we think in london about 1670 so about the time that his father was active there but uh he uh, and so no doubt he learned the violin from his father surely that was was how it worked uh but he finished up being a court musician to the court of the emperor charles vi in vienna which is a particular interest to me because he was working there with the composer that i'm spending most of my time on at the moment antonio caldara who was one of the uh the leading composers for the viennese imperial court um, what Matthias did though was to supply dance music and that was interspersed amongst the the uh, acts of operas and so on and uh, you would have a, a dance a ballet to, to finish off the act of an opera for example and so Matthias was often providing the music for those ballets and so we can hear how musicians specialize to some extent in providing particular kinds of music so as an instrumentalist he he does that whereas uh, Caldara and Fuchs and so on are writing the vocal parts of the music and this is also very typical of the time you don't necessarily have a whole substantial piece like an opera or a mass setting always composed by the one person sometimes the different sections are composed by different people who kind of specialize in those particular aspects of music and is this predating the the period the sad period of time of, of Vivaldi's life when he was trying to also get himself over to Vienna and then ended up dying penniless and and uh, you know sort of in a rather sad state over there that's right yeah this is a bit earlier than that uh, in the kind of heyday of the um, of the court music under Charles the sixth um, uh, up to the, uh, the middle of the 1730s or so um, and so uh, Nicola Matthes dies, in fact, the younger, so this is the younger Nicola Matthes, dies in 1737, um, which was just a year after um, Caldara himself died also in Vienna. Um, so there was probably a significant uh, kind of changeover in the musical personnel to, 
uh, to that extent anyway in Vienna at the time. But interesting that both of them are Italians who've come from the outside. And so again, we see this sort of dissemination of Italian music across European societies. Now, uh, Nicola Mateus, the younger, obviously we can't hear him playing this particular Fantasia in A minor, but we can listen to uh, Teotim Longrodesvart doing it. So why don't I put that on and then we can continue to talk about Vienna and the link that it has in, in, in this program. What's fascinating in this music for me is only at the at the time probably a, a very prominent violinist would have been able to, to to conceive of this sort of music because the voicing of the the arpeggiations is very important and and the way that he and Teotim does this brilliantly brings out the bass line as well as the melody because otherwise it's just a set of chords one chord after that and in fact that's what the manuscript looks like. Uh, perhaps you can tell us about about this style and what what this actually is. Yeah, it is quite remarkable. If you just look at it on the page, it just looks like a, a series of chords. And uh, to be able to play that on a single violin so that it actually sounds like several violins playing together is part of what makes it so striking. And no doubt it was kind of shocking to people at the time to see uh, a single violinist standing on in front of them playing what sounded like a whole orchestra by themselves. And the way it works, of course, is by playing across the different strings at the same time so that it sounds like uh, a series of broken chords. You can break them up by going across the different strings very quickly so that each uh, each string continues to, to ring after the bow has passed across it so that the sound kind of carries through and it sounds like you're hearing all of these instruments playing at once. So many listeners are probably most familiar with this kind of thing uh, in the music of J.S. Bach in his famous violin sonatas and partitas, which again are for a single instrument, which often is playing across multiple strings at the same time uh, to create that kind of effect. This is a nice example of a piece that uses this style, which had been developed earlier in the 17th century in Italy. We hear it a bit in the music of, of people like Marini early on in the in the 17th century, but really developed by this stage by some of the top Italian violinists. 
and this is uh, so just from a little bit before the time when J.S. Bach is writing in this style. Uh, so it shows that uh, he, he certainly didn't invent it, but he developed it um, in, uh, in a, a particular way that, that uh, incorporated both these Italian influences of virtuosity, but also the German style of, of kind of complex counterpoint at the same time. Oh, I believe I don't think anyone's going to argue with you on that point uh, about just how far J.S. Park actually pushed out the the boat, as it were, with uh, with his own take on this particular way of using the violin. Um, yeah, that's right. But it is interesting to hear a piece that comes from just slightly before that. Uh, which um, kind of shows how Italian musicians were working with these possibilities of the violin um, in the, the period leading up to when Bach gets hold of it. We've spoken about John Eccles, but there's also another Eccles on the program, Henry Eccles. So could I bring us back to the, to the, the British Isles and, and Henry Eccles and, and, uh, and maybe you could tell us about, about him briefly? Yeah, uh, we don't know a huge amount about Henry Eccles. We don't even know for certain what his relationship was to John Eccles. So it seems likely that he was his brother. Um, and so he was another of the Eccles family, of whom there were there were several other Eccleses as well who were active musicians. Um, Henry was a violinist, uh, again, and a composer, um, employed by the, the Duke d'Aumont, uh, who was the French ambassador to the court of Queen Anne in London. And so he went back to France with the Duke when, when, the, France, when the Duke returned. Uh, and so again, we can see some of these kinds of international um, kind of transfers going on of musicians moving around between uh, different um, courts and, uh, and therefore absorbing different kinds of national styles. But here he's writing more in the Italian style. And in fact, in some of the, the pieces that he was composing at this time, he borrowed some movements from Italian composers and just put them into his own pieces. What today we would call plagiarism, but at the time was probably just a, a practice of uh, building on the existing repertoire that was available and which maybe people in England didn't otherwise know or get to hear. Well, that's right. And good music sells. So, you know, why not just give it to the... I mean, obviously, this is it's, it's interesting and, and almost laughable um, from a modern perspective in terms of uh, how brazen some of the copying was as it were but in at that at that time that that wasn't deemed to be a problem it was a, if nothing else it was actually probably a compliment that's right and it was a pretty common practice that composers would sometimes borrow whole movements as henry eccles does here but more commonly borrow uh, a theme a musical idea and develop it in a different direction uh, handel did that um, pretty regularly, for example, and it wasn't considered to be a problem because there is no law of copyright. I think just uh, borrowing entire pieces from somebody else and putting your name on them, that's maybe a little bit more dicey and uh, probably was considered morally not uh, not the thing even at, at that time. But there's no law of copyright uh, yet, uh, and so it's not illegal to do. Um, and and uh, certainly borrowing an idea for, uh, musically from somebody else and elaborating on it in a different way is, as you say, uh, potentially a compliment or a kind of homage to that person saying, you know, this is really good music, it's good enough that it's worth giving another outing to and exploring further um, than the original composer might have done with, the, with that idea. 
There are three other composers we haven't really talked about on the program. In Charles uh, Avizon, uh, Antonio Vivaldi, and Francesco Maria Veracini. Three, you know, very interesting composers in their own right. Now, Vivaldi's had a, a lot said about him already this year with Gloria and the Four Seasons and what a wonderful program that was. Um, where does this work for Vivaldi? Maybe we can deal with him very quickly. This, uh, this concerto in D minor, where does this work sit in his repertoire? This is a really interesting one because we're so used to hearing Vivaldi's many, many violin concertos. He wrote something like 230 solo violin concertos plus uh, other ones for multiple instruments and so on. And the vast majority of them have a very typical pattern, which he developed relatively early on in his career and stuck to, which was that they come in three movements, fast, slow, fast, and the outer movements, the fast ones, typically are built on a Ritonello structure, which is a kind of a, a, a main theme made up of a, a set of smaller modules, which could be mixed and matched and brought back as a, a kind of refrain throughout the movement. And that was such an effective way of structuring his pieces that Vivaldi stuck to it for a very long time after that. But this piece is quite early in his output, and so it doesn't stick to that uh, three movement format. In fact, it has, I think, six movements in this case. Um, and so we hear a kind of um, quick moving variety of, uh, of music uh, in a way which he uh, didn't continue to do later on. And so it makes an interesting contrast with the more familiar form of Vivaldi concertos uh, that we hear in the Four Seasons and, uh, and the Lestra Armonico concertos that are so well known. I'd like to share an excerpt from this concerto because it is so strange and unusual, but I want to start it, uh, of all places, from the middle of the third movement. So um, the, the the third movement it starts in an allegro and then goes to a slower adagio, and I, it, there's a particular poignancy, I think, and, and it really speaks to, uh, given that we know that this is early Vivaldi, it really speaks to the sort of composer he's going to become, and we can almost imagine Vivaldi um, with his young... Uh, sort of brazen uh, energy as the red-headed violinist uh, starting work at the Ospedale della Pietà where he was when he actually wrote this this work so far as we know um, and and I just maybe play this excerpt and then we can talk a little bit about the music and then um, go back to Avizon. So this is an excerpt starting us from the third movement of Vivaldi's Violin Concerto in D minor featuring the ensemble Modo Antico led by Federico Maria Sardelli who is very knowledgeable about, about this sort of music.
So the reason for playing this excerpt, Alan, I think is because for me it encapsulates something incredibly important um, about Vivaldi and it's, it's a sense of space but also tension that he's able to create that so effectively translates to um, what, what opera was and the, sort of the way that things were thematically presented to audiences at the time. Uh, yeah, that's right. And we tend to forget that Vivaldi was, uh, for a large part of his career, also an important opera composer. In fact, he probably thought of that as being the more important part of his career, uh, whereas mostly what we tend to hear today on the stage is the concertos, and he was certainly very influential in concertos, but uh, yeah, very much a vocal composer. I think one of the other things we hear here is because it's early Vivaldi, and remember he was born in 1678, so uh, his, as a young man, he's overlapping with the life of people like Purcell and so forth. Uh, that what he's doing there, I think, is uh, building out of an older Italian tradition of multi-part pieces where you would go through a series of short sections of contrasting character. Uh, and it's only a bit later on that we get really well established the Italian form of concerto with those fast, uh, those three movements, fast, slow, fast established probably by, uh, primarily by um, his older contemporary Torelli, uh, and then uh, Vivaldi kind of takes it over and runs with it, and that becomes the standard uh, form that he has for the rest of his career. But it shows us also that musical fashions and styles are changing relatively quickly, so that uh, he moves from this kind of older style into what becomes then the standard Italian concerto style. Uh, but then by the time, as you said, later on when he, uh, he went to Vienna and died there in poverty, um, that uh, his style had become old-fashioned in turn and had uh, become unpopular and he couldn't make a good living anymore writing the kind of music that he'd spent most of his career writing. And it's an incredible thought. We don't often hear this particular concerto actually played in concert. Um, so, so to imagine Vivaldi as a young man and presenting this music, um, you know, at the Ospedale della Pietà and starting out there, like what was what was he doing when he was first starting there? It, it's not as if the Four Seasons came out of nowhere. They had to come from somewhere. That's right, yeah, and uh, certainly he is, um, like all composers, kind of finding his way, I guess. He's building on the styles that he's grown up with, what he hears his older contemporaries uh, writing, and what is what are the expectations of his audience. And it's only once you have kind of established yourself like that that you can start kind of pushing the boundaries and doing things that are new or uh, unexpected and uh, expect to get a, a good hearing for that, I suppose, once you've got a bit of an established reputation and kind of made your name in the, the older styles of music first, which Vivaldi incidentally did with his, his first publications were not of concertos, they were of trio sonatas, which by then were kind of old-fashioned, but it was a, a form in which you could uh, kind of stake your claim and say, look, here I am, I'm a serious composer, I can write in this well-established genre, which people like Corelli uh, had uh, made uh, famous, made a kind of standard genre, and uh, you could kind of put out a marker and say, yes, I can write this kind of music, and now listen to what else I can do. Now, what's the link then? Is there a link between Avizon and Vivaldi and Veracini, these, these other composers on, on the program? 
Yeah, Avison uh, is a, um, a fascinating kind of linking character in a sense because he was an English musician, but very keen on Italian music. And uh, what we're going to hear is a concerto grosso, which so that's a form of concerto where you have instead of one soloist contrasted with the orchestra, you have a solo group. And it's not just a bunch of several different instruments, but rather it's an ensemble of normally two violins and cello. So the kind of group that would play a trio sonata uh, and they collectively contrast with the orchestra. But instead of composing um, a completely new piece, uh, as uh, he was certainly capable of doing here, Averson is doing what we were talking about before, really. He's borrowing material for somebody else. These are effectively arrangements of pieces by the Italian composer Domenico Scarlatti, who is most famous for his keyboard compositions. And so uh, Averson clearly likes um, Domenico Scarlatti's keyboard music, and he says, I could turn that into a uh, into a very nice concerto grosso. Now, the concerto grosso form had gone out of fashion in Italy, where it originated by the time Averson is doing this um, into the 18th century. But it continued to be popular in England, and particularly in provincial England, um, because Averson was from Newcastle on Tyne, not a, a Londoner, where there was you know, more ample res musical resources available. And so it actually, it was a genre that developed in Rome, which had a kind of similar situation in the late 17th century, where you had some professional musicians employed by the courts of the cardinals and the princes and so forth, but then a bunch of gentlemen amateurs who would sort of fill out the rest of the orchestra. And so it allowed you to have your professional soloists play the hard bits, and then the other musicians could come in and join in as the orchestra playing the, the kind of reinforcing sections. And that worked very well in provincial England, particularly through the, the 18th century. And so that style of music stayed in vogue and therefore there's a demand for that. So Avison is able to, to take kind of up-to-date Italian music um, and turn it into a form which had gone out of fashion in Italy, but was still in demand in England as, as a concerto grosso. And then Veracini. So again, an, another violinist. Uh, yeah, that's right. And so he is, uh, again, younger than Vivaldi. He's the kind of next generation of super duper violin virtuoso. We've heard a few Veracini pieces from the Brandenburg Orchestra in the past. Um, I remember Sean Lee Chen playing uh, one of the fantastic uh, concertos, which have some of the start, the music where you start to think, my goodness, how can anybody do that? You know, how can you get your fingers around the violin that fast? You know, it's that kind of show off music. And Veracini certainly was one of those uh, sort of diabolically uh, um, uh, talented musicians who could play things that nobody else could play. And that, of course, is part of his calling card to be able to say, uh, listen to this amazing stuff I can do that nobody else can do. Um, and uh, so publishing his music is also a way of putting it out there and say, you know, have a go at this if you dare, almost, mm. to other musicians. Uh, so he um, also had uh, a career um, which involved going to England. He, um, he travelled there uh, on at least a couple of occasions. And on one occasion, crossing the English Channel, he was shipwrecked. And uh, this was in his last trip in 1745, and he lost all of his belongings, which included two uh, violins, which were reputed to be amongst the best instruments in the world, which just went to the bottom of the ocean, along with his collection of music scores. So that must have been just absolutely devastating for him as a, as a professional musician. Um, but uh, he, it shows again how musicians were mobile, that he also dedicated these 
pieces to that we're going to hear to the uh, Prince Elector of Saxony, Friedrich August. Um, and uh, he composed these in Dresden in 1721 uh, for what was at the time the finest orchestra in Europe, the orchestra of the, the court in Dresden. I myself was devastated when I was reading that particular biographical tidbit because to imagine, obviously, such a fantastic virtuoso, you know, being one of the few people alive at the time capable of playing or creating or imagining this sort of music, and then for a whole swathe of his own personal manuscripts to just as you say, sink to the bottom of the ocean. Like it, it's it's such a <laughs> such a terrible situation. But it also created confusion as to where, when actually Veracini died. I think there there was a bit of biographical confusion, and and, and it's there, there isn't consensus to know as to um, uh, as to what exactly the the situation was. Because some people, it had been recorded in Dresden, actually at the court there, that he died in Dresden. But then this shipwrecked event, shipwrecking event happened, and and so there's all this conflicting information about about his own life as well. Yeah, that's right. And it's often the case, of course, for people who lived long ago that however famous they were, <clears throat> there are only certain records that survive and uh, we have to go looking and piecing together the bits of evidence as best we can. But it appears that in fact, he lived through till probably 1768. So a good while later on. Um, and that's a period of enormous change. So he's born in 1690. So he's living through to the time of uh, Haydn and Mozart and uh, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach and so on, when the whole style of music again has shifted quite a bit. Uh, and uh, so this is one of the really interesting things with studying these musicians to see how much things change during their lifetimes and how well or not, as maybe is the case with Vivaldi, they were able to adapt to that and and change to, to suit the, the tenor of the times. So, Alan, thank you. I mean, it's been a whirlwind. There are so many composers involved in this program, and and actually, few of them um, are, are well known. It's it's not as if we we've got a program of only very well known Baroque composers um, uh, for the, for this one, The Lover. Uh, yeah, that's right, and it's one of the fascinating things. I really love these programs where we get to hear from some of the musicians whose names are not nearly so familiar, but who wrote wonderful music, and and also some of those ones who are the uh, who have the same surname but turn out not to be the same composer we might have thought of, like Daniel Purcell, for example, and Henry Eccles, the brother, possibly the brother of John um, Nicola Matthias, the son of the other Nicola Matthias, yes. and so forth. So that uh, yeah, it really kind of um, fills in the picture in a way and introduces us to some wonderful music we might not otherwise get to hear. Are you looking forward to something in particular out of out of this? Um, fantastic pasticcio that's been created by Paul Dyer and Teotim Langlois-Dosvart. Yeah, that's gee, it's hard to pick, isn't it, out of a program like this. There's so much interesting stuff. But I think in particular, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to hearing uh, live in the, the concert hall music that we don't otherwise get to hear, and particularly uh, that music of the Eccles brothers and of uh, Daniel Purcell, uh, which is such good music, so interesting and so... Um, typical of the English style of the time, uh, of which we still don't hear nearly enough, in my opinion, in the concert hall. 
Yes, I was very glad when during rehearsal that um, Teotin pushed to actually add two more movements into the Daniel Purcell uh, sonata. So in programs, in the printed programs, it'll say just that the, the adagio is going to be played, but there's a correction. In fact, um, the first movement, which is also an adagio, is going to be played first, then the third movement, um, with a very familiar linking passage because there's a bit of similarity between the third movement, that the, 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 the adagio, and a, a very well-known uh, song by Henry Purcell, but I'll let listeners discover that um, in the con- uh, in the concert hall for themselves. And finally, the the fourth movement, the finishing allegro, which is in the form of a jig. Uh, wonderful stuff, yeah, and it's so so nice to be hearing uh, even a bit more of Daniel Purcell than we thought we were going to get. What a bonus! Yeah. Well, thank you again for uh, for your time, Alan. It was fantastic talking about this music with you. And indeed, yeah, thank you, Hugh. It's uh, always a pleasure to, to chat Baroque music with you. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. 